Hello and welcome to According to John. Today we're going to talk about man's program and God's. This is the 12th episode of The Days of Noah with Martin DeHaan. Let's get to it. God has a program for this world and a definite plan for man's sojourn upon this earth. This plan was designed back in the councils of eternity. There was a day when there was no time, when God was all alone by himself from the beginningless eternity. He planned the universe, and when the moment came to create the worlds, he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Psalm 33, 9. And among the countless heavenly hosts of stars, planets, suns, moons, constellations, and galaxies, he chose one tiny speck of matter, the earth, as the stage on which to reveal the greatest demonstration of his power and wisdom and love. He planned and purposed to use this little earth as exhibit number one, the showcase for the revelation of his greatness, power, majesty, and love. He purposed to place on this little earth a creature who would reflect his own image. This creature was man, whose dwelling place was to be the tiny earth. Whether there are other creatures on other planets is still a matter of speculation, and man is frantically trying to find out by his interplanetary travel. But we do have the revelation of God concerning man on this planet. In the beginning, the course of the ages of man's sojourn upon this earth, God, who is omniscient, foreknew every aspect of man's existence on this earth, even to the smallest detail. Not a sparrow can fall without God's knowledge and will, and even the very hairs of our head are numbered. God also foreknew and foresaw that man created in his own image, would become a rebel, disobey God, and bring himself under the curse of God. God also foreknew and planned that after man had fallen and was dead and helpless in trespasses and sins, he would make a way of redemption possible by sending his own son to die for the salvation of these guilty sinners. God was not taken by surprise when man became disobedient. He was not taken unawares when men rejected the gift of his love and nailed the Son of God to the cross. God foreknew it all. He planned it all. He permitted man to fall and then permitted man to reject the Savior. This indeed poses a great mystery and raises a thousand questions which are hard to answer. We shall never know all the answers until we reach the end of the road and see God's plan from the viewpoint of heaven. Then we shall be able to look back and see that God had a reason for all he did and permitted to be done, that he had a plan which would reveal his majesty, love, and wisdom a revelation which only this divine plan would demonstrate. While the evil, sin, and resulting death are hard to explain in the light of a loving, sovereign God, we must accept by faith the perfection of his dealings. We cannot escape the fact that God is omniscient, omnipotent, and sovereign. He could have made a man who would not sin. He could have made a man who could not sin, but instead he created Adam, a free moral agent who could sin. And God knew beforehand that Adam would sin. After God made a man who could sin, God could have kept him from sinning. Yet he did not stop him, but permitted him to disobey his creator. We may not be able to explain this action of God, but we must accept it as a fact and believe that God has a good reason, makes no mistakes, and someday will explain it all to us. In spite of the many things which are unrevealed, God has made enough known to us to see the divine hand of God in his plans for this old earth. We know that God's dealings with man are moving toward a definite, unchangeable goal. 
God's program is to reveal the fullness of his wisdom, love, majesty, and power to all the world. He has demonstrated that love and majesty in the sending of his son to one of the tiniest of the worlds, to the most unworthy of his creatures, and making them recipients of God's greatest blessing. And all the events of history are moving toward that one goal, the final demonstration of the victory of the Son of God. Everything which is happening in the world today has a necessary part in that plan. We cannot help but to believe the time is near when the Son of God, who was rejected when he came the first time, is coming again. And then the curtain of doubt and mystery will be lifted and we will see that all God's plans and purposes were perfect and just. Then will be ushered in that golden age of millennial rest and peace when Christ will be king over all the earth, when sorrow and tears shall not be known. But Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does his successive journeys run, his kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. For this golden age, man has been dreaming ever since he was driven out of the Garden of Eden. But all the attempts of men and nations to overcome the effects of sin and bring in peace and harmony have failed and must continue to fail. God's program is running on time. His plans are being fulfilled and it is therefore the only part of wisdom to inquire into the plan and program of God. There are those who still cling, strangely enough, to the idle dream that man will ultimately conquer the problems of the nations by culture, education, understanding, and the conversion of the world by a gospel of law and the golden rule. These visionary goals of foolish man may be summed up under four headings. Conversion of the world in this age by the preaching of a social gospel of goodwill and mutual understanding. Two, the reformation of society by the application of education and cultural enlightenment. Three, the abolishment of war and violence at the conference table and by modern means of communication and travel. And number four, the unification of all the religions of the world into one great super church. Never before in all of history has there been such intense activity, such energetic efforts made to achieve these goals. Today, in the shadow of atomic destruction, man realizes that these ideals must be realized if civilization is to survive. Never before has there been such emphasis on Christianizing the world with our modern inventions of radio, television, and literature, and yet people are being born many times faster than we can reach them with the message. As to the second goal of modern man, the reformation of society, we have but to consider the countless organizations and movements designed to train, educate, and rehabilitate the backward nations of the world by wiping out illiteracy, poverty, and disease. By sharing our technological and scientific knowledge, we shall soon conquer the inequalities of the peoples of the earth. Finally, we shall wipe out all the barriers to completely integrated society. This is still man's dream. As to the third goal of the nations, namely the abolishment of war and the establishment of world peace, comment seems almost unnecessary. During the first half of this century, two world wars have already been fought. One of these carried the slogan, the war to make the world safe for democracy, and the other was designed to be the war to end all wars. Out of the experience of the last world war, man realized that another world war was unthinkable with the modern weapons of destruction. With the possession of engines of destruction capable of destroying all mankind, another war must be prevented. And so we have formed the United Nations Organization whose one and only main and basic aim 
is to ensure peace and prevent war. But today the threat of war is greater than ever before, and the whole world lives in fear and unrest. The fourth aim and goal of man to end the differences among the nations is to unite all religions into one great world church. There is nothing more cruel than religious intolerance and bigotry. Today the ecumenical movement is in full swing, and on every hand there is compromise, surrender of long-held beliefs, a yielding of fundamental principles in order to produce a system of beliefs and doctrines which will be an offense to no one. A Bible, which will be known as the Ecumenical Bible, is in process of publication. It will be a volume so rewritten as to eliminate all and any material to which any group could object. This, then, is the program of man. World conversion in this age, reformation of world society, the abolishment of war by the efforts of man, and the unification of all religions into one harmonious, innocuous, harmless organization without spirit or power. Now contrast this wishful dream of man with the program of God for this world. It is the exact opposite of man's program. For while it has for its ultimate goal the same results, it will not come through the efforts of man, but only by the program of God. God's program also calls for the conversion of the world, the reformation of society, the abolishment of war, and the unification of all religions. The goal is the same, but there all similarity ceases. These ideals will be realized someday by the Lord Jesus himself. The conversion of the world is not the plan or program of God for this age in which we live. We are not expected to win the world for Christ in this dispensation. It is not in God's plan that by the preaching of the gospel more and more people will be saved until we have converted the world. The Bible does not say that more and more will be saved as time goes on, but less and less as the age progresses. The Bible does not say that the world will get better, but instead will get worse. The Bible does not say that this age will end in a great worldwide awakening and climax in a blaze of revival glory, but instead it says that the church will become lukewarm and apostatized before the coming of the Lord. The Bible is crystal clear that the program for this age is a calling out of a remnant of true believers to form the body of Christ, and the great mass of people will not be one in this dispensation. And history corroborates this program. Nowhere do we see the conversions of whole nations or cities or communities, but here and there a few while the multitudes continue in their indifference. The Bible teaches in an unbroken witness to the decadence of humanity and society as in the days of Noah. Listen to a few passages. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. 2 Timothy 3, 1-5 Does that sound as if in the latter days the world will become better and better? Or listen to Paul in 2 Timothy 4, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned into fables. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4 Jesus told his disciples that as it was in the days of Noah, so it would be when he comes again. 
In addition to the conditions to which we have already called your attention in the preceding chapters, the Apostle Peter adds some pertinent information concerning those days. He says, But there were false prophets also among the people, referring to the days of Noah and Lot, verses 4 to 8. Even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily will bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that brought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Second Peter 2, 1 and 2. Peter is speaking of the days of Noah and Lot. When he says there were false prophets also among the people, for he refers to these two periods in history in the verses which follow. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Second Peter 2, 4-8 In closing, we remind you again of Jesus' words, As it was then, so it shall be. Were the days of Noah the days of revival or days of apostasy? Were the days of Lot days of spiritual activity or indifference? Well, says Jesus, those days are pictures of the last days. In Noah's day, only a small company, only eight, were saved. In Lot's day, only three. To which company do you belong? To the great crowd who goes on its merry way to destruction? Or the little flock, who, though ignored and unheeded, shall be among those who shall escape all these things which are coming to pass? It is still not too late. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode. And I tell you, it is definitely something that we need to think about. You know, we're looking into the world, we're seeing what's coming, and it sure enough is lining up with the days of Noah. I do not suspect that we're going to have great revival and that more and more people are coming to Jesus. As a matter of fact, as we look, we see that it's getting harder and harder and harder to share the gospel. Hey guys, I hope this helped you, and I hope that you one day have the opportunity to share the gospel and win somebody to Jesus. Please like, share, subscribe, and follow. And until next week, God bless.